All right, good morning again. All right, so kids can head off to reach kids now. All right, off they go. <laughs> All right, so as Randy, Randy mentioned, we are in the Ten Commandments, uh, but we are calling them the Ten Promises. We talked about why last week we saw that, that promises are stronger than commandments, that commandments are weak, and that commandments can be broken, commandments... Uh, we have so many commandments, we have so few promises. And in Jesus, by his spirit, he turns these commandments into promises. Promises that he will do the things that he has promised to do, that he will conform our hearts so that these things that are commanded are, are actually exemplified in our lives. That the power is in Jesus, not in us. Now last week we just looked at the preface, so today we are looking at the first commandment the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, this is the most difficult of the commandments. First of all, it's the most exclusive. This is the, the exclusive worship of God alone. You may have no other gods except this one. Now, first of all, that's just incredibly demanding. Because if we know our hearts, we know that our hearts produce idols and produce false gods. We put our hope in other things. We put our expectation and our love in other things. And so the demand that we'd be exclusively committed to this God is too much for us. And the other hard part of this commandment is that this is the foundation for all the other commandments that if you murder someone, you are putting other gods before our true God. If you lie, you are putting gods before this one true God. If you steal, the thing you're stealing is a god before the one true God. We're going to see that this is the foundation for, for the whole law, is the exclusivity of this, of this Yahweh. But the hard part about this is, is that exclusivity. That that's, that's off-putting. That we, we get to say that, oh yeah, we, we know the one true God. And we know his name. And we know exactly how he wants to be worshipped. That, that's pretty presumptuous. And we need to say that with a certain amount of humility. And if that's what we're communicating to the world, we need to know why. And in what way we are exclusive. How we, how we believe that Yahweh is different and why we worship him differently, why he deserves this commandment, why this commandment is not just a curse, it is not a judgment against the world, it is actually a blessing for all people. So, we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to see, first of all, what does this commandment really mean? That's an important part of it. What does it mean? Second, we're going to be looking at what it reveals about the character of God, what it reveals about his character, and third, we're going to see how it becomes a promise in Jesus. So what it means, what it reveals, what it promises. All right, let's pray. Father, as we look at your word, and specifically your law, we ask that we'd remember that grace comes first and law comes second, that you save before you call us to obey. And Father, we ask that 
these things would serve uh, the purpose of us glorifying you better, of loving Jesus more, of seeing your goodness and sharing that goodness with the world. Father, you are exclusive that many people may come to a personal relationship with you. That you call us not because of anything in us, but because of your great and exclusive and unique love and grace. Would you show that to us? Would you give us great joy in this command, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You shall have no other gods before me. So it's not a lot, it's not a big passage, as you can tell. But we're going to break this down a little bit, just so we're, we're on the same page. So the question is, are there other gods? He's saying don't have other gods. Are there other gods? Now, in one sense, yes. In one sense, no. So, first of all, there's one God, there's one creator, there's no one who stands alongside of him. And so, when we're, when we're picturing God in heaven, we're not picturing him in a pantheon with a dozen other gods. No, he is the one true God. He alone is God. Everything else is created, everything else is secondary. There are no real other gods. But, that doesn't mean they're not real in another sense. So, there are real powers out there. There are real things that, that can be worshipped. And that's where these gods, which are truly idols, are false gods. They nonetheless embody real things. So, so take the Canaanite god Baal. Baal. All right. This Canaanite god, what was he the god of? He was the god of fertility. He was a god of rain, and he was a god of storms. Now, these are real things that people really needed. You could not survive without fertility and rain. You would be dead. And if a storm comes at the wrong time in the wrong place, you are dead. All right, so it was profitable to have Baal as on your side, in a sense, because maybe you might protect yourself from the danger of the storm. You might earn yourself these blessings. So, is this embodiment of fertility and rain real? No. But are the things that you're pursuing real? Yes. And that's where the human heart creates gods, creates other gods, creates idols. Are they real? In one sense, no. But in another very real sense, yes, because you are worshiping them. And you have created them. And you seek, we all seek, the blessings and, and to avoid the curses of these gods through worship and through sacrifice. And we do this each and every day. So, uh, I'll prove it to you. Just because you don't have an idol statue in your house doesn't have an ancient Near Eastern name, doesn't mean that you don't have idols and false gods. So the classic example that Jesus himself identifies is money. Money. It so easily translates to a false god that Jesus actually gives it an ancient Near Eastern name. He calls it mammon, this idol. All right, so how does, how does this god of money work in the same way as all the other gods do? If you sacrifice to it, it promises a blessing. If you sacrifice, it promises you a blessing. All right, so how do you make sacrifices to money? Maybe you sacrifice your time. 
You work overtime. Maybe you sacrificed time with your family. Maybe you sacrificed a little bit of moral integrity along the way. Maybe you're sacrificing other things that you could be doing besides making money. You're sacrificing to, to serve this God and this God promises certain blessings and to protect you from certain curses. Now money's an especially good one because it's more sophisticated. So there's some people who can pursue money and what are they looking for? They're looking for stuff. All right, they're looking for cars, they're looking for clothes, they're looking for, I don't know, things you buy with money. I mean, you can figure out that list. Um, the tangible things. All right, but then there's another layer. There's the intangible things. Do you want the recognition that it affords? The honor? These things are, are equally the things we're pursuing through idolatry. And then there's the whole other layer, which is you're protecting yourself from the curses. That money can act like a talisman. You, you protect yourself from disaster should it come. That at least you'll have this net to catch you. So we sacrifice for the blessings to avoid the curses. Now we do this in everything. In everything. So take the idols of work. Why do you work? You can glorify God or you can, you can go for achievement and value and glory in its own right. Your kids, they can make you feel like you're good enough, like you're doing a good job, maybe even feel like you're, you're doing something eternal, you're passing on to the next generation. You will live forever through them. Take politics. Maybe you're looking at politics and saying, okay, they, they are the answer to, to fighting corporate evil. They will fix the country. They will fix the world. Philippians says that, that for some, our God is our stomach. That we seek pleasure and, and appeasement and satisfaction in those things. All right, the question is not, do you have idols? The question is, what are your idols? What are your idols? And you should know them. You should know them. You should give them ancient Near Eastern names so that you remember them. You should, you should know these things because they are there in your heart. There are gods. There are gods in your heart that you worship. Now the question is, okay, you, you see them. You know what they are. What do you do with them? What is this commandment really telling us? Well, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. All right, there's a little bit of ambiguity there. Okay, before me, what is, that, what is that really trying to say? There's kind of two possible things to be trying to say. First is that God comes before. He comes first. That if you, if you line up your idols, God gets to be the first one. If you line up your gods, God gets to be the first one. All right, that is not what this is saying. <laughs> this is not saying that, you know, this is just a game of prioritization. That as long as you... you throw enough beans in the God bucket, he'll be happy. All right? That's not what we're talking about. But that also is how, how we think about it, maybe even how we talk about it in the church. They're like, oh, well, check your heart so like, it doesn't, doesn't rise above God. And it's like, oh, that's, if it's rising above God, you, you already have a big problem on your hands. It was an idol long before that. No, that's not what it's trying to say here. When he says before me, 
In the Hebrew, it actually it has an awkward phrase. It says, before my face. Before my face. It's that you are not supposed to have idols because I am there looking at you. And like, uh, you shouldn't be holding your idol. Like, oh, right, right, you're, you're God. No, it's that God is in our presence. He stands before his people and he doesn't want to see idols there. He doesn't want to see other gods. He doesn't want to have people in the, in the place of worship, worshiping other gods. <coughs> so then, that's a little bit discouraging for us because it's not that we need to prioritize. It's that we should not have any idols. We should not have any other gods. Now, what does that really mean? That means that you can only have, have one master. You can only seek everything in one place, in one God. And that's where, that's where we have choices. And we seek things in, in different gods. So we ask, okay, uh, wh where am I going to seek my comfort today? Am I going to seek my comfort in prayer? In trusting that God knows what he's doing? Resting in the work of Christ? Or am I seeking in something else? If I'm looking for meaning, am I seeking it in the kingdom of God? Or am I looking for it somewhere else? If I'm looking for joy, am I looking for joy in the worship of God or in something else? Now, all of those something else's are idols. They are other gods that maybe if we serve them, they will give us the blessing that we're looking for. That is idolatry. That's what it means. Now, for me, that is devastating because that means I have a lot more than I thought I did. All the ways I seek other things in, in places that are not in God. Idolatry. All right. I said this was the hardest commandment. This is the hardest commandment. All right. Thankfully, thankfully, there's more here than just, than just the commandment as it stands bare. Remember last week we talked about how these commandments also reveal the character of God. They reveal the character of God and ultimately the character of Jesus Christ. So what does this commandment reveal about our God? First, it reveals that our God is exclusive. He is exclusive. Now that's a hard one for us culturally. But we have to admit our God does not play well with other gods. He just doesn't. All right, so an example of this. Example of this. Favorite story about this. The Ark of the Covenant in the Temple of Dagon. All right, so Ark of the Covenant, that's, that's Indiana Jones, that big, that golden box. All right, they carry it around. It melts Nazis. That's what we're talking about. Um, it doesn't actually do that. Um, <laughs> maybe it does. I, don't, I wasn't there. Um, so, all right, so Israel, Israel is fighting the Philistines. The Philistines actually win and steal the ark. And what do they do? They put it, they put it in their temple to their god, Dagon. Now, they're pleased with themselves. The priests leave. They come back the next morning. And where is Dagon, the statue of Dagon? 
but face first in front of that Ark of the Covenant, bowing down to the Ark. Now, they're kind of miffed about this. They put him back up. They leave. They come back. This time, he's back on the floor, but his head is cut off, and so are his hands. <laughs> Our God doesn't play well with other gods. <laughs> he just doesn't. All right, and that's, that's kind of anxiety-provoking for us. Because we're supposed to play well with other gods, and, and our God, we, we want our God to play well with other gods. And we live in a culture that says, no, no, these gods are supposed to all kind of be the same. And that's the message. That, that maybe we're just all worshiping the same God by different names. Well, this commandment says actually, no. No, I call myself Yahweh. He's the, I'm the real deal. And I want nothing to do with all the others. Now that's hard. That's hard. Why doesn't he play well with others? Why, why is God saying, no, it, I, don't, I don't just want general religious agreement. I want you to worship me. Yahweh by name. Why does he care? Now he cares because he is different. He cares because he is different. He is exclusive, but he's also different. And he gets to be exclusive because he is different. Now, the other gods, they ask you to pay first and get later. All right? You obey first and maybe you get a blessing. That's what every other religion is based upon. That you work and you work and maybe you'll get saved in the end. All right, that is not our God. If that's the God you've heard of, that's not this one. That's every other one. No, this is the God who saves first, who promises first, who chooses a people first. And then later he tells them how they can obey, how they can actually remain saved, remain free. This is what we talked about last week. No, that is different. That is different. And I think that reveals something very important about our God. That he is personal. He is personal. Now, other gods, other gods are your, your idols. These idols we've created in our hearts, they are transactional. They're economical. You're just buying things by worship to get things in return. Now, what is this like? If you go to Aldi or you go to Walmart, you're allowed to go to both. You're allowed to go to both. Casey and I will make a trip to both of them because they're right next to each other and no one cares. Walmart doesn't care and Aldi doesn't care because it's just a transaction. There's no relationship there. They're not checking, they don't know you, they don't care. Now, that's all the other gods. They're just making deals with you. But our God is personal. What is Yahweh like? Yahweh is like going to grandma's house for Thanksgiving. And if you're going anywhere else for food but grandma's house on Thanksgiving, you have betrayed grandma. Because <laughs> grandma, 
has sired generations so that they would come to her house on Thanksgiving because she knows you and that's her God-given right to feed you turkey on Thanksgiving. It's personal. It's personal. And if you don't go or you go somewhere else, it says something about grandma. All right. That is what it's like with our God. These aren't transactions. We're not buying things from God. We're going to grandma's house. And that's where you can see why God would be intolerant of other gods. Because if we add all of this up, this personal, exclusive, different kind of God, we have a God who has chosen us personally. Israel is called the chosen people. That he picked us up and called us his. That he made promises that would last for generations. That he has established things and he'll be faithful to them to the very end. That's why this relationship between God and Israel is often, often it uses a, a marriage analogy. That he is the groom and they are the bridegroom. We are the bridegroom. No, we're the bride. That's wrong. It is wrong. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> the groom and the bride. We'll just do that. I don't know why they doubled it in, in the... Anyway, <laughs> the bride and the groom. So he's the groom, we're the bride. We're the bride. That's the language that's used. And if you have a bride, you don't go share the bride with other husbands. That's what he's trying to say here. And that doesn't mean he's less loving. That means he's more loving. He actually cares. Because this isn't just a way to get worship or get sacrifice. This is a loving relationship between a God and his people, a husband and his wife. When we think of it like that, it makes a lot more sense. That is why our God is exclusive. That is why he is exclusive. He chooses us before, he loves us before, he is faithful to the end. We see this picture in Ezekiel where we see God describing his people and it's, it's this picture of him just lavishing his love upon his people that he's dressing them in finer and finer goods in, the, in jewelry and perfume, just making them as beautiful as possible. And then we see the contrast with idolatry, that that same beloved, beloved wife then goes off to idols, to false gods, and she comes up ravaged and bloodied and torn to pieces. That's the reality of the difference between a God who is Yahweh and the, all the others. They are not looking to be faithful. They are not looking to be spouses. They are looking to use you, to use us, and take what they can get and leave us behind. That is what God is trying to protect us from. It's not that he's just a jealous lover it's that he loves us and doesn't want to see us torn to bits by users and abusers. That is what we should see in this God. That is what we should see in, the, in this law that he's protecting us, he loves us, he is faithful, all others are not. That when you go to Aldi and you don't have any money, they stop giving you food. 
when you go to grandma, she keeps giving and giving and giving. That's the difference. There's a commitment there. There's faithfulness there. All right, so that's, that's hopefully a picture of, of God versus idols. But we can take it actually one step further. The last thing is, how does Jesus create, create this, and turn this into a promise, into a blessing? And it's something we can actually rejoice over. All right, so we've been, we've been speaking in terms of Yahweh. Because that's, that's the language that the Ten Commandments uses. That's, that's the God who is giving these commandments. And Yahweh is a good name for God. All right, it's just kind of generally encompassing like this philosophical concept that he contains all of his being in himself, which like <laughs> is good because he needs to do that. Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't be God. But it's really not that exciting. And it's not that personal. It doesn't like communicate very well. This loving groom that just is lavishing love upon us. And that's where, when Jesus comes, he says that he is a better revelation of who this God really is. That when Israel received this God, he was actually, he was announcing these commandments from heaven. And how did they receive that? They were terrified. And they were actually crying to Moses, like, Moses, please, we don't want to hear from God anymore. It's too terrifying. It's a little too personal. We, we don't want it. They weren't seeing this loving God who was caring for them. His holiness was overwhelming. And so, in time, who does God send? God comes in the second person, Jesus Christ incarnate, to show us who this God really is. To show us that he loves first to show us that he's full of grace, that he has full of forgiveness. And what do we see in Jesus? We see this, this man God who provides for the needs of his people. That we think that these idols are going to give us all these things that we need, and then we see Jesus. And Jesus is giving bread to the hungry, and not just saying, here's bread, he's saying, I am the bread of life. You need food. Food is me. Giving water to the woman at the well, saying, you are thirsty. I am the water. We see him saying, I, I am light. You need light. I am it. I am life. I am resurrection. He is the one who contains all the things that we need. He is who we need. He is our greatest need. He is our only need. He comes to show us that in, in a hundred thousand tangible little ways that we read the Gospels and we see this God put on display. And we also see another side of God. We also see that in Jesus, we need something more than just the things that we need. We need, we need forgiveness. We need cleansing. We need to be saved from our idolatrous hearts. And he actually points to religious people who go to church and says, you know what, even when you're praying, you're idolizing yourself. That you're putting your reputation on display. 
And when you're fasting, when you're supposed to be thinking about God only, all you're thinking about is yourself. And how aren't you a righteous person because you're suffering so well? Jesus sees every ounce of idolatry and then he goes to the cross for it. And that's where Jesus, Jesus is accused of being a false god, of pretending to be one of these other gods so that he could pay for the fact that we have idolized everything we can get our hands on. That is what he did. That is his washing the bride with his very own blood. That he saw our idolatry. He saw our need for salvation. He saw our need for forgiveness and he paid for it. And that's where we can leave this, we can leave this place feeling very guilty and seeing our idols, seeing all the ways that we, we run to other things, not to God. And we should change those things, but we shouldn't leave feeling guilty before God or scared of him because the payment has been made in Jesus. The payment has truly been made in Jesus. And when he rose from the dead, he gave us one other thing. He gave us his spirit. And that's where we see this is you, that we stand before God. That we, we stand face to face with him. He sees all things, but in Jesus, he actually comes and dwells with us he is inside of us. He is working on this terrible, wretched heart and changing us from the inside out. He is killing the idols. He is killing the false loves. He is breaking the chains. Now, we ask, is this God different from the rest? Yes, he is. There are no other gods who have sacrificed themselves for their people. There are no other gods who, who put them first in that way. There are no other gods who have suffered with and for their people. That's why we can say that we should worship this one God. That we put other gods before, either we put him, him before all others, we, we believe in him, we love him, because he has put us in that place. He has put us first. Now, one last thing, one last thing. We have this saying around here. We say nothing but Jesus. We say nothing but Jesus. Some of you like that. Some of you don't like it. Some of you are just kind of confused by it. That's okay. But it, it really does mean something. And it means that we are, we are committed to how Jesus is unique. And that God expresses his uniqueness in the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. And that's where church itself can become idolatrous and become focused on other things that, that aren't central. We could focus on the centrality of the law and the demands of the law. We could focus on, on improvement and working hard. We could focus on social change or, or political change. We could focus on, on the culture and being relevant and giving people exactly what they want, but no, we are giving people Jesus because we, we truly believe that, that Jesus is the best picture of who this God really is and we don't want to put any other God before people. 
that this Jesus is unique and we want to show people just how unique he is. That God is different as expressed through Jesus. So may we love him, may we worship him, may we cut out all of these other idols and seek all of our needs in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can call you Father, that we don't call you Yahweh, but Father, because you have given us your Son. And we are, we are broken to see our idolatry. We are broken to see all the ways that we seek what we need and what we want and other things from you. And Father, we ask that we would truly believe that in you is all life, in you is all all that we need. And Father, we thank you that you have promised to give us all the things that we need in Jesus, that when we see him face to face, we'll be like him, and you'll give us the righteousness that we long for, and we'll have everything in abundance. So Father, would you give us what we need in the meantime, that we'd make it to that final day. Father, would you help us to share with people nothing but Jesus. They need him, they do not need the law, they need they need a savior, they need a redeemer.